0: Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of Funding MedTech brought to you by Project MedTech. This is a brand new podcast we are spinning off from our MedTech Money series. Funding MedTech is an interview style podcast focused on exploring ways to fund MedTech innovation. There won't be any new episodes of MedTech Money, but I encourage you to check out those old episodes as there is some awesome content on raising and investing capital. We decided to spin the series off as we wanted to change the mechanics of the episodes to be shorter and more tactical in nature. You will be hearing from all different kinds of funding vehicles and the inner details of types of funding and the how, why, and what. If anything from us or I'd like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations, and is released weekly on Monday. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Valentium. Valentium is a contract design and manufacturing firm in the specializing in the end-to-end development, production, and post-market support of diagnostic and therapeutic active medical devices, especially active implantables and other Class 3 medical devices. Valentium's core competencies include electrical engineering and design, mechanical engineering and design, embedded software, software as a medical device, mobile apps, CGMP contract manufacturing, embedded cybersecurity, OT, cybersecurity, systems engineering, human factors and usability, automated test systems. With customers all over the world, Valentium works with clients in every stage and situation ranging from startup-seeking funding to established Fortune 100 companies. Visit Valentium.com to explore your next step in medical device development. In this episode, our host, Rich Mazzola, and our guest, Troy Zabo at Woodward Angels, discuss the details of the fund size, the type, investment thesis, check size, and more. So without further ado, Rich's discussion with Troy Zappo
1: Medical Innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future, and what comes next with hij.
2: Good afternoon. I'm joined today by uh Troy over at Woodward Angels. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Troy. Yeah,
1: thanks. Thanks for having me, Rich. I'm excited to uh, talk to you today.
2: Yeah, awesome. So, so Troy, I'd love to to kick off today's episode. You're you're out of Michigan, right? Which uh, which part of Michigan? Uh,
1: the Detroit area. So, um, they, the name of the angel group is Woodward Angels, which is alludes to the Woodward Corridor. So, if any folks from the Detroit area would know the Woodward Corridor kind of runs from Detroit up through kind of up through the northern suburbs. Um, it's kind of a historic historic road. Um, but our, our footprint is a little further than just Detroit. It's really the suburbs and kind of reaches all the way out to, uh, the Ann Arbor area.
2: Awesome. And how'd you, how'd you just your background, how'd you get involved in venture capital? How'd you get your start in, 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 investing and in maybe reviewing opportunities and, and specifically med tech as well?
1: Yeah. So, um, actual, my, my day to day is, um, in financial services, corporate financial services. So. We're for a company called Stat Ross, and we do we do a handful of financial services, including investment banking, financial due diligence, um, technical accounting, and I sit in the valuation practice. Um, so that's what I've done for pretty much my whole career. But I, it um, was a few years ago I learned about you know an angel angel investing, and I guess I was always kind of a aware aware of it for a long time, but then. You know, I hit a kind of certain point where it really just became interesting, more and more interesting. I'm not really sure what it was that sparked that, but um, so I decided to look around at different angel groups in the area, reached out to a couple, uh, joined a couple angel groups and um, really, really enjoyed listening to pitches, talking to entrepreneurs and just like hearing all these incredible ideas out there and then the, and then being able to analyze these these opportunities and you know essentially kind of bet on what i think are going to be winners was really exciting um yeah so that's kind of the history
2: you took the so you've been doing the science part of valuations and now you were looking to the artsy side right because we always tell startups it's it's more art than science when you value <laughs>
1: well it's, but yeah especially at the early stage and and, and most angel investing a lot of times, it's pretty pretty early stage. So when you have a pre-revenue business, or even just a a, a pre-positive cash flow business, the um, the valuations start getting a little more a little more artsy. That's for sure.
2: No, that's awesome. And I, I I'm going to have a question for you later on the Burkus method, whether or not you know it, but uh, I'll bring that up in a bit later in the conversation. So, you know, just exploring Woodward a bit further, um, you know. So I know it's not necessarily a fund or a pool of funds that Woodward invests out of, but really the collaboration amongst a lot of angels within that Detroit area. So can you explain a little bit about how you operate, how you look at opportunities, um, and then we'll get into more of the scouting of that nature. But curious on the unique nature of that that angel
1: group. Yeah, so um, I can give you kind of a full background and Michigan Capital Network, which is actually um, it's it's kind of, those two parts to the business. And, and first I'll talk about the angel side. So, so on the angel side, it's Michigan Capital Network Associations. And that consists of four angel groups to the state of Michigan, uh, two out on the east side, that's Woodward Angels, the one that I'm the director of, and then, um, and that's the Detroit area. And then also up a little further north, uh, Midland, um, uh, it's, it's, well, it's the, around the, the town of Midland, um, and that is Blue Water Angels. And then over on the west side, there's Grand Angels uh, in Grand Rapids. And that, that one's actually had a pretty long history. It's We just actually just hit the 20-year mark for Grand Angels. And then Keizu Angels, which is a uh, Kalamazoo-based uh, angel group. So that's the, that's the angel side. And then over on the, there's also a venture side, uh, Michigan Capital Network Ventures. And we have a really strong relationship with them. Um, the venture side was actually kind of formed out of Grand Angels. It started with an angel fund and kind of evolved from there. And now they're on their their fourth fund. Um, they're actually raising an opportunity fund now um, as well. So they have a well-established history and a, and a great track record. And what what kind of makes our angel groups really unique is since we have this relationship with uh, a well-established venture fund, we get an opportunity to invest in sidecar deals in almost all of their um, um, investment opportunities. So that really helps our angels get a crack at high quality deal flow. That's a little bit later stage than you typically see for angel deals Um, because angel deals a lot of times are pre-seed, seed, seed, sometimes A. Um, But with the venture side, they do more seed A and B. So it's not much later, but it's a little bit later. Um, They're very well vetted. These are full-time professionals uh, doing due diligence on these companies. Um, And then it also ensures that when, when we invest in these venture deals we know that there's a you know a professional um, VC that's going to have influence over the company whether it's a sit on the board or just, um, help with relationships or give you know advice and also their access these companies access to capital is a little better too um, knowing that they can also be funded by the VC
2: yeah And out of curiosity you know when you guys get engaged in maybe the earlier side right pre-seed, seed seed, uh, how often do you find that the the Michigan Capital Fund is the next staged investor for those opportunities you've already invested in, and and that kind of allows for almost a, a default follow-on for you guys as well, right?
1: Yeah, it it does happen. It's I wouldn't consider the the angel side a feeder for the um, for MCN Ventures. However, there are definitely cases when. Um, the angel group is maybe first check in and then next round is the venture fund. Um, or even the venture fund will invest kind of right off the bat. I mean, there's, there's a company pretty recently at advanced manufacturing company that came through blue water angels. Um, and they were really early stage. Actually, they, um, it was really, it was a handful of folks that had really good industry expertise. They had some, um, really solid, um, IP that they had acquired, uh, but they had an action and, and the engineering know how to build the machine, but they hadn't actually even, didn't even had a prototype at this point, a working prototype. And, um, the venture fund got involved after, um, after meeting the, you know, the founder and the, and the company through. Blue Water Angels and ultimately ended up investing in that really early stage. And then now we've already had another round after that. Um, And both the, we get, you know, um, there's quite a bit of money raised from both the venture side and the angel side for that particular deal. So it definitely, it definitely does happen. Um, Typically though, it's the, it's almost more the other way around where the venture feeds us more deals than we feed them deals.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. But that's kind of a nice, um, nice kind of sweetener, right? Cause in, in the instance where, you know, ventures engaged and having a discussion, there's an opportunity then for you guys to look at it from an angel side and, and almost from a founder perspective, I guess it's almost like a double dip, right? You're hitting, hitting two groups at the same time in some cases. Yeah, no.
1: And that's actually, you know, that's, what's really important for, um, you know, the angel side, it's really great if you're an angel investor in our in our group because you get the opportunity to get the cracks of the venture deals. But on the flip side, like, like you said, is it, it helps us um, or it helps the venture team. It's really valuable for them to have this large group of angel investors that they can lead on to help fill out uh, a round better, right? So not only does it give them a little bit more um, – um, builds a relationship better with the company because they can bring in more funds but it helps to ensure that their portfolio companies get fully funded in their rounds.
2: Yeah, that's great. You guys can come in and kind of fill it out. That's
1: perfect. Yep, exactly. Um, but, yeah, exactly. And usually it's like 50/50. So, if there are companies let's say, you know, raising, you know, 5 million bucks and the venture fund is willing to put in a million, it wouldn't be uncommon for the angel side to also be able to um contribute about a million so now we just got you know um uh, 40 of that round
2: and actually that that leads into a nice next question here so so sweet spot i always called it the goldilocks range but check size valuations wh- where do you guys typically fall in terms of the woodwork group i know it's it differs from an spv perspective but um what's that typical range from a check size and, and size of total round you guys like to take part in
1: Yeah. So in, um, and I'll speak specifically for the, uh, angel side, um, since it's four different angel groups that share deal flow, we kind of typically what we like to do is if we, if we're going to have a company pitch, they get access to all four angel groups kind of at the same time. Right. So like, um, and then we'll potentially invest together in an SPV, but the check sizes range quite, quite a bit. So direct investors that are just going to not you know uh, invest through an SPV they will um, it really kind of com- comes down to what the company's minimum check size is so you know um, sometimes that can be a barrier for some investors so let's say it's a 50 or hundred thousand dollar minimum um, investment. Um, you know some investors in the group uh, or a lot of investors in the group aren't comfortable writing a $50,000 check for a really early stage company. Um, so what we do is we will form the SPV and if and if we can, typically the thresholds, if we can hit about 150,000 in interest within the, the four groups, then we'll form an SPV and then we'll in uh, kind of invest together.
2: Perfect. Um- Valuations. So, you know, in this day and age, I think there was a big shift, especially with the interest rates going up, a a pretty dynamic shift away from price rounds, equity rounds, um, where you'd have to kind of formally put an evaluation, pre-money valuation in the ground, uh, and a shift more towards convertibles and safes. And maybe in some cases there, they're looking at valuation caps in lieu of discounts or both. So from Woodward Angels, I guess, do you guys have a, a threshold on that valuation cap that you like to play within?
1: Um, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, I mean, I would agree that things have shifted. I'm seeing a lot of bridge rounds with, uh, uncapped notes or uncapped safes after there's already been an equity round raised. And I I think it's exactly what you said. I mean, companies don't want to price the company. So they'll just do a, you know, some sort of note with, uh, with a discount hoping, you know, that they don't have to reprice the company and eventually they're going to have to, but I don't know if they're trying to delay or they just don't think, you know, they're hoping that valuations pop back up again, which I, I highly doubt by the time they need more capital, um, that'll happen. But obviously, you know, I got no crystal ball here, so I, I don't really know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny. I've been saying this on the last few episodes, but people are moving away from the name bridge rounds because it's got this negative connotation. And, and so they're moving it to like a pre A, pre B, yeah. you know, pre A2. Uh, yeah, all right. We all know it's a bridge. Yeah. Round. yeah right. You
1: can call it whatever you want. Either way, you're running out of runway and you, you're not ready to raise your, your, your next round. So. Mm
2: hmm. No, that's exactly right. So, so you know, just out of curiosity, opportunities coming to Woodward, obviously you got a lot of deal flow from, coming from the Michigan Capital Fund, but uh, uh, you know, outside of that, uh, fun, we'll call it funnel uh, or pipeline, how do you guys seek opportunities? How do folks get in touch with you guys uh, and, and maybe move the conversation forward?
1: Yeah, th- there's a few different ways. Um, so we, we got a you know, a lot of the deals will come from angels so we have, I think it's anywhere from without, not just Woodward Angels, because I really, a lot of times when I speak, I'm going to be speaking to about all four angel groups because we, we share deal flow. But, um, you know, individual angels, and it, it varies, some folks just want to come to meetings and write checks. Um, others want to get really involved, right? So the ones that want to get more involved and, and go out for scout for deals, um, you know, really the process should be to once you meet a company, you do further due diligence if you really like the opportunity and you think it's a, a, a good opportunity, then you're going to push it forward and, um, and the way that they kind of meet these companies, a lot of times it's, you know, there's a few different ways. It's, you know, pitch, going to pitch competitions or local events. Um, one of the ways I really like um, is just relate just through my relationships with uh, VC firms or other angel groups. Um, you know, the value in that is, you know, there's another set of investors that are excited about it, right? So, um, I wouldn't ever expect a VC firm to send me a deal that they're not willing to invest in themselves. Um, you know, what they'll do is if, if, if they, you know, they want to help fill out the round for their portfolio companies so say, well, you know, I know, why don't I send this over to Send this over to Troy. Um, help fill out the round, um, you know, and, and and he's, you know, I, I'm appreciative of it because I, we want a good deal flow, um, and they want to be able to help their portfolio companies. You know, say like so. The next step too is, you know, once we once an individual angel is comfortable with a deal and is excited about it, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to invest they do have to kind of pull out a tight screen and say, you know, this is still a really good deal. There might be a a reason why that individual isn't going to personally write their own check, but they got to ask themselves, do I think other individuals might want to write a check? And if the answer is yes, then they will send the deal over to our um, angel investment review committee, which is essentially a handful of deals, uh, angels, it's more than a handful, I guess it's probably about 20 of us that once a month, we split up the different opportunities, review them, score them, get on a call, talk about it and kind of look at it from, uh, you know, a qualitative, but also the quantitative perspective of, you know, how did we score these deals and then decide, hey, who are we going to push forward and and add to the, you know, to the to the docket for one of the upcoming angel. Uh, meetings, um, who are we going to reach back out because we have more questions? And then who are we just going to kind of close the door on and let them know that you know we're not interested?
2: Out of curiosity, you know, that criteria around uh, how you're scoring, you know, I, I always like the people look at terms and say, you know, if the terms are right, it's going to be a good fit. Well, that's not always the case. There's sometimes these intangible attributes with founders, with the opportunity with the company. Um, I know you and I talked about a motorcycle opportunity we're looking at right for fun. And, and so just out of curiosity, what, what's the, you know, from a I guess let's ask the question of what are the actual things you're scoring as a group, as an investment committee?
1: Yeah. So there's a handful of different, uh, categories and then within those categories, it kind of breaks it down a little further, but so first is team. And then within team, like, you know, we're looking at subject matter expertise, they have any startup experience. Um, education, um, the diversity of the team. And when I think of diversity, um, I'm looking at it from a lot of different angles, right? Um, You know, I'm looking at just like full background of the uh, team. So it's not necessarily just a demographics um, diversity. It's also, you know, if you have a team that is, um, you know, let's say they're an advanced manufacturing business and you know, you want them to have um, engineering expertise. But if it's six engineers on the team and none of them have any sort of like um, go-to-market strategy background or strong leadership background, then, you know, I I wouldn't consider that very diverse. Um, And then then to kind of go from there, um, product, Um, that's another category and the, you know, the differentiation, how developed the product is, the value proposition. And we also look at the market. So we want to understand the size of the market, but also the trajectory of the market. So if you have a growing market, um, you know, that's also something we want to consider, uh, kind of the economics and the growth potential. So where are they at with revenue and the trajectory of the revenue, which is actually really even more important than the revenue is probably the trajectory of the business, Um, you know, they're they're going to be profitable at scale and how scalable the business is. And then we move on, we start talking about the competition and look at that competitive landscape. Um, And then there's some, you know, and then we also, you know, we'll look at the kind of the investment um, opportunity itself when it comes down to, you know, like your, your return consideration. So, you know, how much further dilution, are you going to potentially have is this company, you know, might be a really awesome idea and we might think that they could sell for $200 million, but if, if it's going to take another hundred million hundred uh, million in funding to get there um, and you still have this really high risk potential, then, um, you know, that's a consideration. That's something that we do need to consider. Um, yeah. And then, and the deal terms, of course, we look at as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I like that comment around um, you know, post-round dilution, right? thinking about the next round in advance of, of what you're currently working on. I think a lot of founders, and we push a lot of our clients to think this way, is I'm, I'm focused on this round and closing this round right now so I can do the next thing. And then once I'm done with the next thing, I can go do the next round. And I think they don't zoom out as much and look at the broader picture and say, yeah, but what does that mean for everybody else that you've engaged with? And, and what's that effect to them? Um, so I like that, that viewpoint of, Hey, okay, we're going to invest today. That means we're going to get X, Y, and Z in terms of equity position, but they got to go do based on the, the market competitiveness, or like, it's, let's just say it's a direct to consumer based product they're going to sell into, uh, as a med device. It's, it's, you gotta, that's a lot of marketing dollars, right? So your next round is going to be huge and the dilution effect is going to be massive to us, not just you. Um. So, no, I love that. And I, I love that kind of forced thinking forward uh, beyond what you're currently working with. No, that's great.
1: Well, I say, and you know, future is a big part of having to, if you, there's a really capital intensive uh, kind of development process, but also, Hey, maybe they won't be able to raise a $50 million round and that's a little scary, you know, so they need 50 million to do it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's also mm-hmm. a big hurdle for them.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely so um you know curious on the milestones right i, I know we're, we're evaluating some of those intangibles but also you know within the med device space med tech space we're talking about fda clearance in some regards so do you look for or does woodward or the investment committee look for you know specific milestones to be achieved prior to investment in something like that you know whether it's an fda clearance fda submission maybe prototype development is complete or an mvp is complete where do you like to see certain milestones at before they kind of reach out
1: well- You know, since we are early stage kind of, and that's, that's typical of a lot of angel groups to be pretty early stage is, um, I don't think there has to be a particular milestone that has to be hit, but they, they should be full aware of all the steps that they need to go through. And you know, the more the progress, the better. I mean, without a doubt, I mean, any company that is nearing the end of the FDA process, um, that makes it much more appealing for, for investors. It, I, but I, but I wouldn't say there's like an exact criteria, but they definitely need to understand the roadblocks ahead.
2: Yeah. And, and I'll just, I'll, I'll do a plug and say, that's right, folks, get your pro formas, your five-year models done. Cause that's yeah. <laughs> going to encompass all of that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I want to zoom out a little bit here and talk about the fundraising environment. I know we touched on it briefly. Um, and I know you're a macroeconomics kind of guy too. What what do you see the landscape for startups right now, specifically in the med tech space, how it's evolving? Um, you know, everything goes up and down all the time. Everything's cyclical. History tends to repeat itself. But um, have investment strategies shifted, you know, specifically for your team or what you see the angels doing from an SPV side?
1: Um, I don't know if it's shifted much. Um and I don't know if this is really the question you're asking, but I, I, I will say I have. I mean, I have seen valuations come down um, from, you know, from a term sheet perspective, things have changed. I've seen companies. I, you know, I've met with companies about, you know, a year ago, and then they had a particular, um, you know, valuation and deal terms, and then. Talked to them again a couple months ago, and their valuation caps have come down, and the terms have gotten a little better, and they've actually made some 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 positive progress going through the FDA process. So, um, you know that that has definitely been a shift. Um, I think, from my criteria perspective. You know, I, I I do want to see term sheets that are more aligned with market, um, but and and I and I guess I do want to see companies being more thoughtful of, about when they can actually have p- positive cash flow. You know, it gets tricky if you have a company that's going to need you know they're going to need four more years to before they can actually commercialize. Um, So maybe the expectations for that type of business would be different than a business that, you know, can, is a year away from commercializing or can is already having, you know, um, sales then for those types of businesses, you know, I, I want them to be thoughtful about like, Hey, when can I actually be cash flow positive? It's, it's also, you know, it's a fine line because you know, this type of business, um, there's a high growth potential opportunities that VCs and angels are investing. And in. so you do need to throw money at sales and marketing and growth efforts, but you know, and that and that's gonna help you get funded too. Again, is if you have, you have, you know, three times year over year sales growth, it's going, that's going to be a consideration and that's going to be really helpful when you're going to raise your next round. Um, but, you know it's not all companies have that so if you have a little slower growth it might be harder to raise the next round so maybe you need to know when you can be cash flow positive and it also it's just it's a, it's a good exercise to go through to at least understand when you can generate positive cash yeah. flows i mean that's all for me that's ultimately the purpose of a business right if you think about the value of a business it is the present value of the f- future cash flows, right? So and high growth opportunity business, well, it makes sense if there's no positive cash flows in, like, coming up in the very short term. But those, the further out you get the potential for positive cash flows, and the smaller the, that positive cash flow is, the lower the value, current value of the business is. So I think it's, a, you know, you yep. look at it from that perspective.
2: We're we're in the business of building sustainable businesses here, right? We we all want our clients to get acquired in three to five years, right? That's everybody's intention. That's why you get into the startup game. But at the end of the day, um, if you don't have a path towards profitability and ultimately cash flow positive from operations, you know, um, why would somebody want to acquire it in a five ten k kind of presence, right? If we talk about maybe Denovo and PMA products, where it's you know, if you could prove clinical efficacy, then you have a, a shot at an exit. Um, that all makes sense, right, in that climate. But when you talk about commercializing a product and that type of genre of a startup, it's absolutely crucial to understand where you're profitable. And I think one of the exercises we do for a lot of clients, and I think we've showed this to you, Troy, and the Woodwork team, but the cash curve model, where we're really looking at points of inflection in valuation and when we go raise capital so that we understand what we've completed from a milestone perspective that's then when we go raise capital for the next round and ultimately where's the cash where's, where are we profitable in that cash curve and where are we cash flow positive where it starts moving in the other direction other than down um and and when you understand that the exercise in, in at least in my, our minds as the early stage companies come to us is what's the buffer at that cash flow positive point between 0 and that number If it's a million or two million, well, then it's like, okay, we know we have plenty of buffer to cover delays, clinical trials, hiring people sooner than we wanted to, or thought to, or accelerating certain investments or opportunities. That's great. That's a huge buffer where we can allocate that. But if you're talking about a hundred bucks and we have delays, well, then you're going to be in the negative. So clearly there, we need to either raise more capital at the next round or the round thereafter, uh, or we'll tranche the rounds a little bit or something. Because um, understanding when you're going to become cash flow positive is crucial um, to the overall trajectory of the company. Um, now, if you get acquired earlier in that plan, great. Everybody's happy. Um, but if you haven't thought that through, well, then you're going to have a huge deficit in your plan. Yep.
1: Yeah. No, and I'm glad you kind of expanded on that because the last thing I want to do is the viewers to listen to this and think I'm trying to say, hey, you got to be cash flow positive today because that's not necessarily the uh the model of a high growth vc funded business um but you know it kind of depends on where in your your growth stage you, you are so it all really kind of depends and and like you, you said right you could have i mean for this pharmaceutical companies out there that um i mean they if they don't really you know you know startup ph- pharmaceutical companies that will sell and exit before they ever commercialize anything so and they just because it's a you know, it got through a certain stage of FDA and a pharma company picks them up. So that's kind of a whole different and that's what makes you know the the life sciences field kind of so interesting and complex is because the model for growth and and an exit plan, it can be so much different from one company to another.
2: Hundred percent, hundred percent. Everybody's everybody's story and journey is a little different in this world, and um, if you think through the plan and have the right advisors and the right team, you can you can kind of make that work to your favor a little bit. Um, so, just coming up on the half hour mark here, I guess would love to kind of conclude it with two more questions. One being, you know, any any pearls of wisdom for the entrepreneurs listening in? What what would be one piece of advice you'd give them if they're approaching you guys or another VC or just raising capital in general?
1: Um, well, I guess for really early stage, uh, companies and I'll, I'll, I think it's, you know, we see a lot of really early stage companies, um, as an angel investor, I, uh, my recommendation would be to have write yourself a full business plan. Um, you know, most likely you're never going to get asked that by uh, an investor. I mean, you might, um, you know, I've, I've, I've asked for um, business plans. Um, but, you know, I don't think that's the like a, all that common of an ask. A lot of times the question is, can I see an executive summary? But I think they're really valuable to have that um, business plan because then you build a full roadmap. Um, and as you're building out that full roadmap, you are also kind of questioning some of your assumptions, um, making sure that what you think is true is true, truly is true once you start putting stuff on paper not it is not only does it um help solidify it in your head you kind of question everything you make sure you're not missing any holes or any gaps in your in your plan um it's just kind of a useful exercise to go through and it is it is time consuming but i think it's 100% valuable and then you know that that the plan will change and that's that's fine. But you kinda of get it on paper, you keep it updated and you're just kinda of thoughtful about it.
2: Yeah, paying attention, being proactive. Absolutely. What's um and out of curiosity, give me give me one book you're reading uh on the business side right now and one book you're reading on the personal side
1: for fun. Oh well, uh I, I don't I don't read a ton. I listen uh more, but we'll say uh Um, listening. What am I listening to right now? It's actually been a little bit. I, I, I like podcasts Um, a decent amount. Let me pull up the last book that I was in my audible
2: outside of med tech. Well, obviously this all the time. The,
1: uh, okay. Well, what, what I pulled up in, uh, uh, the last one is this, the secret zoo secrets and shadows, but that's for my daughter. So that's what she listens to at night sometimes before we go to sleep. Um, well, I read a book recently. The most recent one for business was "Never Split the Difference" uh, by Chris Ross. Yeah, it's a, it is good. It's it's you know it's a it's a negotiating kind of a negotiating handbook, and it's a it's a different way to look at things than kind of what some of the standard processes have been. He was actually um, a so the the author had a background in. The, I believe it was the FBI, or the CIA. And, and that's where he learned to be an expert negotiator. And then he ended up, um, you know, teaching at business schools and teaching his method to um, in the business world, which was actually, you know, the original kind of way that negotiation tactics were taught in the business world were just vastly different than the way that he looked at things um and it was it was just really interesting to hear you know two different ways to look at things and kind of like what what you know how his rules and strategy applied very well in the business world because ultimately when you're negotiating um at the end of the day you know you're still dealing with people and people have their own motivations and a lot of it comes down to like really understanding the other side
2: yeah. And, and I think his background was a hostage negotiator. So take a high tense, high situation like that and, and bring it in the business world where things aren't as uh, life and death. I mean, that's, but to your point, it's exactly right. He's, he's using those examples and those hostage negotiations to to reach an amicable conclusion that um, you can use and apply in the business world. A great book to read. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Troy, thank you so much for your time and, and appreciate it. And uh, your LinkedIn profile will be in the post in, in our uh, podcast episode release and then as well as your contact information for Woodward.
1: All right. Great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on today.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at infoprojectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.